Welcome to episode 22 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. On December 1st, 1923, Sun Yat-sen delivered the following words as part of a speech preparing his followers for the forthcoming reorganization of the Kuomintang, which is where we left off in episode 20. Now our good friend Borodin has come to us from Russia. The Russian Revolution started six years later than ours. However, the Russians managed to implement their ideas completely during one revolution. The position of the revolutionary government there becomes stronger day by day. Why did the Russians succeed? Well, we cannot gain victory. They won because the whole party, supported by the military, took part in the struggle. We should learn Russian methods, their organization, and their training of the party members. Only then can we hope to achieve a victory. End quote. At the upcoming Congress of the Guomindang in January 1924, the Guomindang would be reorganized with the help of Borodin and other Soviet advisors. The new organizational model would be the same used by the Communist Party. The idea was to weaponize the organizational structure of the Leninist Party, with its hierarchy and discipline, without adopting the Marxist ideas which the party structure had been invented to advance. If communists could use the party structure to become more than the sum of the individual party members in the cause of communism, maybe nationalists could do the same thing? Sun Yat-sen and his Soviet allies hoped that the new party structure could be put into practice to facilitate mass mobilization for a revolution which would reunite China, which had been divided into fiefdoms by different warlord cliques, and to make China truly independent by kicking out the foreign powers who dominated the country, often in collusion with the warlords. Previously, Sun had mainly relied on making alliances with relatively progressive warlords, but this had proved a perilous strategy, as the allegiance of self-interested warlords could shift. This had already happened in 1922, when the warlord Chen Zhongming suddenly turned on him and Sun Yat-sen had to temporarily flee Guangzhou, humiliatingly, on a British Navy ship, before rallying his forces and taking back the city. The guiding philosophy of the Guomindang was officially something called the Three People's Principles. The three principles were nationalism, democracy, and people's livelihood, although they can be also legitimately translated as populism, civil rights, and people's welfare. So it's important to understand that there's some flexibility in how the concepts are translated between English and Chinese. The meaning of these principles was left pretty vague, and this had been helpful in making the Guomindang a big tent party that could encompass both left and right-wing nationalists. As Chiang Kai-shek was leaving the Soviet Union in November of 1923, he was given a document drafted on behalf of the Executive Committee of the Communist International, reinterpreting the three people's principles in the most revolutionary light. In this document, nationalism was interpreted as meaning a commitment to the struggle against the imperialist powers, as well as a commitment to the self-determination of minority nationalities within China, such as the Mongolians, Tibetans, Uyghurs, and others. Democracy was interpreted similarly to its interpretation under the Soviet dictatorship of the proletariat, 
as something to be enjoyed by working people and those people and organizations which opposed foreign domination of China, but denied to the foreign exploiters and those who worked in their interests. It was not an inborn right, but something to be granted or denied based on social and political position. And people's livelihood was interpreted as state socialism, the nationalization of much of the economy and its modernization. Also included was a provision for giving peasants the land they tilled and abolishing landlord-tenant relationships in agriculture. Chiang Kai-shek was affronted by the document, but passed it along to Sun Yat-sen, who endorsed the document almost entirely and turned the whole thing into a reworked and rearticulated three people's principles, which were enshrined as party ideology at the first Kuomintang Congress. The only section which Sen outright rejected was the land reform component. This gave a strong leftist political coloring to the Kuomintang Congress, as did the very active participation of Communist Party members, several of whom were named to the new Kuomintang Central Executive Committee. Li Dajiao and Mao Zedong were particularly active at the Congress. Lev Karakhan, the Soviet ambassador to China, wrote to Gregory Chicherin, the People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs, basically the foreign minister, that the Kuomintang is turning into a really vital, active, correctly organized national revolutionary party, such as we do not have in any other country, end quote. But, not unlike marrying after the first Congress of the Chinese Communist Party in 1921, Mikhail Borodin expressed frustration at the, quote, complete ideological and organizational confusion, end quote, of the Kuomintang, at its tendency to compromise with imperialism and to neglect the mass movements, and at the opportunism of Sun Yat-sen. Clearly, while the newly reorganized Kuomintang now had created room for communists to work within it, and in its name, and had committed itself on paper to politics far to the left of most of its longtime membership, the actual political beliefs and practices of most Kuomintang members and of Sun Yat-sen himself could not be changed overnight. As things were coming together for the reorganization of the Kuomintang in late November 1923, the Central Committee of the Communist Party had held a meeting to work out exactly what their work within the Kuomintang would look like. Finally, they were able to get much more concrete than they had been earlier in the year, as we discussed in episode 20, about how the communists could work inside the Kuomintang. The first task was to enlarge the membership of the Kuomintang. In areas where the Kuomintang didn't have a branch, which included large and important areas like Hunan, Beijing, and Nanjing, the communists would work to establish functioning local party branches in which they hoped to exercise a preponderant influence. Within the Kuomintang, the main ideological goal was to push the organization to fight against imperialism. The fact that Sun Yat-sen had been able to be bailed out of Guangzhou by a British naval warship in 1922 is indicative of the vacillating nature of the Kuomintang's opposition to the various foreign powers dominating China especially as Japan came to be seen more and more as the biggest threat to China. The communists would keep pushing for and emphasizing a strongly anti-imperialist interpretation of the nationalism component of the Three People's Principles. The communists were to maintain their own secret organization within each Kuomintang party branch, 
so as to coordinate their activities to have the greatest possible impact and to utilize the Guomindang and the communist work within the Guomindang toward the ultimate aims of the Communist Party, rather than losing sight of why they were working within the Guomindang in the first place. The problem here was that this hardly remained a secret. It was suspected from the beginning by many Guomindang members, and already at the first Guomindang Congress, some rightists objected to communists joining the Guomindang for this very reason. Finally, the Guomindang was seen as a vehicle for spurring mass movements among different sections of the people. It's worth quoting the Central Committee resolution here to see exactly how the communists saw the United Front as facilitating mass organizations of different sections of people. Quote, A. The Peasantry The peasantry is the strongest force in the nationalist movement. Thus, the Guomindang should use the nation's peasantry as its base and set up sub-branches in the rural areas of every province. The movement's strategy will be to begin by educating the peasants, using the slogan, For the benefit of all peasants, and working on irrigation projects, protection against robbers, boycotting foreign goods, and resisting heavy taxes. At the present stage, we should begin with a struggle to improve the economic situation of the tenant farmers, even if it causes resentment on the part of the middle peasants. B. Workers. Labor unions deserve the same attention as we pay to party organization. We should nurse the workers' class consciousness. End quote. It's worth pointing out how vague this section on workers was, given that the Communist Party had ongoing union work of its own, and saw the workers as the social base of their own party. This reflects some confusion and disagreement within the party over how much the union work should be continued independently or through the Guomindang. Mehring had pushed the party toward doing everything through the Guomindang, but Mehring was gone now, and other noises had now been coming from the Comintern, indicating that the communists should maintain their work among the industrial proletariat independently of their work in the Guomindang. This was finally clarified in May 1924 when it was decided that the communists should maintain their independent identity when working with the industrial proletariat, but assist the Guomindang with artisans and salesmen's unions. Okay, back to the November 1923 Central Committee Resolutions list of different social groups and how to organize them under the guise of the Guomindang. Uh, C. Merchants. We should find out those in the business associations of the localities and big cities who are against the bureaucratic elements. But by bureaucratic elements, what's meant here are those capitalists who facilitated the penetration of China by foreign corporations. So essentially, the task laid out was to work within merchant associations to identify patriotic elements among the national bourgeoisie, that is, the Chinese capitalists who did not rely on foreign funding or patronage. D. Shop assistants. It is urgent that we set up shop assistant associations in big cities, such as Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Tianjin. While the urgency of the task isn't exactly clear to me, the idea here was that the Guomindang provided a vehicle to recruit and organize white-collar workers who would not otherwise be amenable to or suitable for the Communist Party. E. Government employees. 
As with the shop assistant associations, associations of the lower-ranking government employees have a great influence in the cities. F. Students. Students provide a key link between the different organizations. Students in junior high school have played an important role in the peasant movement. Here with students, I think little detail is given because the Communist Party had already done so much work with student groups. Indeed, many of its members came forward into the movement on university campuses. That there was little need to be expansive about how that work would proceed is pretty clear here. To sort of bring it all together from this list that we've just gone over, what brings it all together is that the Guomindang was to be turned into a vehicle for the mass mobilization of these social groups. Previously, while the communists had urged the Guomindang in this direction, the Guomindang had been involved in only limited mass mobilization. As it so happened, as 1924 progressed, a difference in strategic orientation began to develop within the Guomindang. On the one hand, the right wing of the Guomindang opposed the politics of mass mobilization and wanted to rely mainly on political maneuvering among elites combined with armed force, either through working with warlords or through the Guomindang developing its own army, as was now starting to happen. But the left wing of the Guomindang distinguished itself from the right mainly in its support for mass mobilization. In many ways, the left wing of the Guomindang was very similar to the right wing. Personalism and opportunism were pervasive. But the key issue which distinguished the Guomindang left from the right was its support for mass mobilization politics. The Guomindang left felt that mass politics was key in distinguishing their party from the warlords. Now, it's easy to forget that mass politics and mass mobilization are not necessarily the monopoly of progressives and leftists. It's easy to forget because, of course, the material interests of the vast majority of people do lie with left-wing progressive solutions to the people's problems. Things like forming unions, land reform, and ultimately the elimination of oppressive relations in society and in the world as a whole. But people can be mobilized in other bases as well, such as cultural or religious values. Uh, mass mobilization has been a cornerstone of fascism. For example, uh, in Nazi Germany, many German workers were convinced that their material interests were best served by identifying with the German nation to exploit and plunder other peoples, both at home and abroad. And a similar logic has also often been at work with how the ideology of white supremacy functions among white people in the United States. And of course, even absent fascist and white supremacist ideologies of mass mobilization, large-scale modern warfare between powerful countries is premised on the idea of mass mobilization of a country's population, a fact that's easy to forget because it's been some time since two or more major world powers openly made war on each other. So, how is this observation about the not-necessarily-left-wing nature of mass mobilization relevant to our discussion of the Guomindang left? Well, given that some of the most prominent members of the Guomindang left did go on to serve in the Japanese puppet regime, which was set up in China during World War II, I think it's only natural to have some questions about the nature of the importance that these people placed on mass mobilization 
at the time when they found themselves allied with the Communist Party. At the time, they did not support pushing mass mobilization efforts to the point that unity would be broken with, for example, patriotic landlords or capitalists, whereas the Communist Party was more willing to push those boundaries. Right in the document we just read from, uh, it was pretty explicit that uh, they were willing to alienate the middle peasants even uh, in order to push for gains for uh, tenant workers and poor peasants. At the time, the communists distinguished between the section of the Guomindong which believed in mass politics and the section which saw the nationalist revolution as a mainly military affair and called them the left and right wings of the Guomindong. And historians have largely followed suit. In fact, as the difference between the right and left of the Guomindong became clear, the communists tried to develop a policy of uniting with the left and opposing the right. But in retrospect, and given the direction that many of the allegedly left-wing members of the Guomindong went, especially in collaborating with Japan, but also in uniting with the Guomindong right against the communists at various times over the next few years of the history we're covering here, I wonder if by labeling the mass-oriented faction of the Guomindong leftist, if the communists didn't underestimate the reactionary nature of many of the alleged leftists. Uh, the confusion of a mass orientation with a progressive overall agenda is something we see repeatedly in the history of international communism. Uh, when one looks, for example, at the ability of the Nazi party in Germany to recruit militants away from the Communist Party, uh, one factor seems to have been the way in which those militants were drawn to mass-oriented politics aimed, at least ostensibly, at improving social welfare. The fundamentals of the political program advocated, radical equality in the case of the communists as opposed to imperialist conquest and racist oppression in the case of the fascist, were not what counted to the former communists who became Nazis. This sort of thing happened in Italy as well. And while the overall social process was, of course, multifaceted and can't just be reduced to this issue, the lack of understanding about how not only the left, but the right as well, can mobilize masses for, masses for its own end, created a lot of confusion for people trying to deal with the threat of fascism. And I'd argue, even today, we see that in the way in which today's proto-fascist movements are able to peel away people who had previously adhered to leftist causes. But anyways, back to China about a hundred years ago. The left-wing thrust of the first Kuomintang Congress and the assertiveness with which the Communist Party began to utilize the Kuomintang as an organizing vehicle prompted a strong backlash by the Kuomintang right. The main motivation for the Kuomintang right's attack on the communists was anti-communism as well as opposition to the mass mobilization politics which the communists were promoting within the Kuomintang. But the main thrust of the attack by the Kuomintang right had to do with secret communist organization within the Kuomintang itself. This was a tactic that allowed the Kuomintang right to rally more centrist forces against the communists. At one point, the Socialist Youth League, the Communist Party's youth organization, made the mistake of publishing in its journal the party's resolutions and tactics for working secretly within the Kuomintang. And this prompted a very uncomfortable meeting 
at which Chen Dushu, the Communist Party general secretary, was confronted with the documents. Chen replied that the, the fractions were organized to ensure that comrades abided by Guomindong decisions and worked actively, and that there was no intention to try to win power over the organization. I don't think that anyone believed this, but matters were not brought to a head. By the summer, things had gotten so bad that the Central Committee of the Communist Party issued a circular signed by Chen Dushu and Mao which prepared party members for the possibility that the communists would be expelled from the Guomindong. As it turned out, they were not expelled. In a report written about the same time as the Central Committee circular, Borodin expressed the opinion that the right and left wings of the Guomindong, including even Sun Yat-sen, had become united in their opposition to the communists. However, he thought that they did not move to expel the communists because they feared a loss of Soviet aid, which was necessary for building up the army which would carry off the northern expedition. And so by the summer of 1924, the united front that the Comintern had urged the Communist Party to form with the Guomindang had entered a fraught state of high tension, which would persist with some ups and downs until 1927. The communists had made good use of the Guomindong to mobilize in ways they couldn't otherwise and to recruit for themselves. By the time of the Fourth Congress of the Communist Party in January 1925, the party had grown to almost a 1,000 members, more than doubling in size from its last Congress, and had a youth league of about 9,000. And influence in mass organizations such as unions and student groups far beyond those numbers. The Guomindong, in turn, have been revitalized by the energy of the communists, who were its most energetic organizers in the mass movements, and who carried out important executive tasks even as they fierced, faced fierce opposition from many leading Guomindong figures. And of course, the Soviet aid was pouring in. In another episode, we'll discuss the Wampoa Military Academy, which opened in late spring 1924, and where the Guomindong's army would be trained by the Soviets. So, to wrap up for this episode, as the United Front policy was put into practice, both parties were benefiting from the collaboration. But the success was creating tensions, and it was clear already in 1924 that some sort of rupture was inevitable. <laughs> 